All right. If you will please take your Bibles, open them once more to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. And if you would join me in standing as we read out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 8, beginning once more at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give us an understanding of hope that transforms us. Give us the ability, God, to lean on you while we hope for what we do not see, believing it as if it were already in our hands. Give us grace. Give us the truth of Christ, and let us testify of his truthfulness to a world that does not believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There exists for all who understand the nature of faith, of belief, and of the power that it teaches us, a strange and beautiful vision in the act of waiting. It's a powerful juxtaposition of hope and completion, the rising coming of the promise, the anticipation of its coming as it grows nearer and nearer, and finally, the delight in the fulfillment that is the most wondrous experience possible. It requires focus and determination and usually involves a rehearsal of the promise a recitation of the past evidences and a conscious application of our reasons for believing that many find wearisome, if not impossible. Built into our celebrations of this season, there are ample opportunities for us to practice this art, this pattern of developing our spiritual muscle that grows when we actively choose to believe against all powers that seek to destroy and undermine our hope. We have in this season reminders of the fact that all of God's promises come true. That they come true in His time. And we have evidence in the story. We have testimony of those who waited millennia for the fulfillment of God's promise of Messiah's first coming. We're given accounts of their overflowing joy and awe that they were permitted the privilege of seeing the consummation of the promise in the coming of the child. I think of Simeon. And his words when he said, now I can die in peace. I've seen your Messiah. When Christ came, the promise was fulfilled. The anointed one of God. The word made flesh. John puts this wonder into words with typical lyrical poetry. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's this truth that's often forgotten in the chaos of the holiday. In our delightful rehearsals of our customs, customs that wear just enough of their source to alleviate or at least deaden our guilty suspicions that we might be missing the point. We teach our children to give because God gave. We ourselves give with joy as expressions of love. And those with self-control or at least some restraint are content to wait and see what others have given them with a sense of anticipation and delight in revelation of the gift. We do these things and fail to see and understand that they are given to teach us the story and to help us to learn to wait for the end, for the revelation of the mystery and its full purpose. There is a process in which God requires us to wait. And we've been looking at that from different angles throughout this entire season as we've considered hope. And and I'm struggling to try and express the truth that the waiting itself is good. That God gives us this time to learn to wait because the waiting itself contributes something needful. It contributes something powerful. It contributes something beautiful. It contributes something that when the thing is finally given, the anticipation and the waiting and and the joy that, that it comes with that consummation makes the gift better than it would have been if somebody had just flung it at you and said, here you go. It's, it's a wonderful thing that God gives us this ability to look forward with hope, to look forward with anticipation, to look forward with an understanding that He's going to do what He said He was going to do. And He, he helps us to apply that to all parts of our lives. This is a skill that we need to grow. This, this microwave society that we have developed, which waits for nothing, is killing us. It's destroying us in every level. And there is something powerful and something profoundly important in learning to wait and in trusting that the waiting itself is beneficial, that the waiting itself is a good thing for our souls, that it's a good thing for our minds, that it's a good thing for our bodies. There have been so many studies that have been done about just the simple act of preparing food instead of buying something ready-made. That when you begin to rehearse the process of making food, your salivary glands begin to work and your stomach juices begin to churn. And the process of actually making the food prepares the body to receive for what's coming. Beloved, the same thing works in our spirits. The same thing works in our souls. When we begin to rehearse what God has promised us, and begin to rehearse what he said he would do, and and look at the promises, and look at the signs, and look at the little glimpses that have been given throughout history to understand that, yes, God keeps his promises. He keeps every one of them. That begins to strengthen our souls. It begins to strengthen our ability to trust him. It begins to give us something that will allow us to cling just that much tighter when things get that much harder. And so I want to spend this morning with you thinking about that process and thinking about how for millennia God had promised the coming of Messiah. And in this tiny little insignificant town born to parents that nobody would recognize, he fulfilled his promise. And for those who were watching and for those who were waiting and for those who were anticipating that, yes, he would keep his word, there was... Joy beyond measure. And the reason there was joy 
is because they were expecting God to do exactly what he said he would do. Amen? Amen. All right. So, from the very beginning of man's sojourn into this fallen world, God made promises. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3. You know the story, but let's just look at a couple of things and maybe put another little layer of perspective into our understanding. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick it up after the bad thing has happened. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They took the fruit they weren't supposed to take. They abdicated the responsibility that they were supposed to hold. They stole things they weren't supposed to have, not only in the fruit, but also in the authority. And God has begun after having called them out to issue the consequences of their behavior. Verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now that is the very first prophecy of Christ given in Scripture. That is God telling the world by his instruction to the serpent that one day there will come one who will destroy the serpent and who himself will experience a wound from the serpent. And that wound will be death, but it won't be fatal to him because he is God and rises from the grave. But this is the first prophecy of Christ. It's very vague. It's very veiled, and the best way to see it is from this direction looking back. I imagine everybody in the garden went, what's that about? (laughs) Okay, let's move on. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, I've addressed this before, but just in passing, I want to remind you that the issue of this curse has nothing to do with children as its whole. There is an issue wherein children will now be difficult to bring forth, but the whole part about your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you, that is not about sex. That is not about a desire to want to have children. That is 100% about control. That is 100% about Eve's desire to dominate her husband to be the one who tells him what he will be and what he will do. And God says, the truth is, I have made him ruler over the home, and I'm not going to change it. That word desire is a very specific Hebrew word. It means a desire to control and to dominate. And it's only used one other place in the Old Testament, in chapter 4, when God tells Cain, sin is crouching at at the door, and its desire is for you but you must rule over it. We see that same pairing, desire and authority, desire and rule. So God tells Eve, look, I understand that you're going to want to rule your husband, but I'm not changing the order of things. I'm not altering what I've planned. Now, I want you to remember that, because God never one time altered what he planned. There has been no change in God's plan since before he said, let there be. This has been the plan all along. To Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. 
In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now Adam introduces a new aspect of the curse, and that's the reality that our responsibility means that our consequences are not only ours, but those who are under our authority. It's a cautionary tale that far too often we miss. When we have authority over a thing or over a people or over a family and we fail, we do not bear the consequence of our failure alone. And you don't need to look very far in this land to see that played out every single day in broken home after broken home after broken home. Children need fathers as much as they need mothers. They need whole families. And when dads will not stand and be men, but instead act like little boys in grown-up bodies, the consequences of their sin falls on all who are under their authority. It is a tremendous blow to this land. And we need to understand the reality of what it is. It's why we fight very hard to see families healed and put together. It's why everything that we do, we try to center around family. Verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, God very clearly set the whole of creation on a path of misery and conflict. Very clearly. He said, the consequence of your behavior is this. And I'm going to contend again, as I have contended many times before, that this is not an alteration of God's essential plan. This has been the plan from the beginning. But I want to show you something really cool in the midst of all of this misery. Notice that God did not allow even the curse of sin to completely derail man's ability to fulfill his purpose. Adam was going to go forth and till the ground, for instance. He was going to produce food. He was going to provide for his family. He was going to do the work of exercising dominion over creation. He just now was going to have to work for it. Amen? Amen. God didn't say, well, you guys blew that plan, so now you can't do the things I wanted you to do. That's not what happened. What God said was, this is the consequence of your behavior, but hiding in the midst of the darkness of that curse is this glimmer of hope. That even through the difficulty, you'll still be able to accomplish what God sets you out to do. And that's something that's essential for us to understand in the context of hope. Difficulty and misery would attend man's labor in every area of his life, but he would still accomplish his purpose and exercise dominion over creation. Also notice... That even though man is now barred from the intimate fellowship with God that he had enjoyed up until this point, however long that was, I think maybe a matter of hours, (laughs) 
I can't imagine it took too terribly long for this to go horribly awry. But the point is, even though man is now barred from that level of fellowship, notice what did not happen. God did not cast man out and say, you know what, I'm done with you. I'm never going to talk to you again. I'm not going to ever offer any hope of restoration because he first of all promised that Christ was coming. And then second of all, he provided for man's basic needs. He provided for them tunics made of skin. Now, we've addressed this many, many times, but I'm just going to tuck it in. Remember that that represents for us the very first sacrifice. No animal sheds its skin apart from its death. doesn't happen. So God slew something in order to provide for them a covering, and that covering represented the covering for sin. And in that sacrifice, he instituted the sacrificial system and the rudimentary forms of worship that would later be codified when Moses gave the law. This is evidenced because God told Cain later, what? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? What does that imply? It implies that he knew. It implies that Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve and all of their siblings had been given the instructions about how God expected them to worship. So what's underneath that? God is still providing a pathway for them to have some form of relationship with him. He is still providing a pathway whereby they might know him. You see, God invested in the entirety of all of this hope. He was not to be destroyed nor cast off forever, but rather God himself would inexplicably provide a covering for sin and the whole of the promise would be prepared. So God's promise for the earth and for mankind was that he would redeem it, that he would restore it, and that he would make that which he was slowly unveiling so wonderful that everybody would confess his perfect wisdom and his awesome power. And you say, where in the world do you see that in Genesis? Well, I don't see that in Genesis from this side of the cross. But I do see it in Genesis when I look at Genesis through the lens of the rest of Scripture, which is what we're called to do. We're called to allow Scripture to be its own interpreter, not to bring in everything from our imagination, but to bring in the truth of Scripture and to allow Scripture to give us light whereby we see Scripture. So, with your eyes on the Genesis curse and the rudimentary promise of Christ, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul gives us an insight into the purpose of God that is glorious beyond all glory. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 8, Paul writes this, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. So the beginning of the ages would be what? Before anything began. That's all the way back to the very beginning. God had the same plan, the same purpose. It was hidden in Him. So which was from the beginning of the ages, hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places 
according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That purpose is what? Eternal. That means it has been the purpose all along. It has always been God's intention to produce a redeemed people who would put on the character of Christ, demonstrating the redeeming love of God above every other attribute that he has shown. He's demonstrating who he is as he manifests Christ in us. That's his purpose. So think about this for just a minute. If that was God's purpose now, and it's an eternal purpose, was that not also his purpose in Genesis when he pronounced the curse? Always. God is always serving the same purpose. He's always serving the same purpose of displaying who he is. He's always serving the same purpose of manifesting his own glory. And he also has always served the same purpose of doing these things by his own power and his own grace and his own might and his own will because he is unwilling to share his glory with anybody else. He's unwilling that anybody else would have the right to say, hey, I did that, God. Yeah, you can take credit for all that part, but I did that bit. Think about this. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 6. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I'm going to say that again. His name, this son who is being born, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Anybody ever wants to tell you the Scripture doesn't say Jesus is God? Take them right here. Show them what he says in Isaiah chapter 9 and tell them, go read your Bibles. The Bible's abundantly clear. He is Mighty God. He is the Everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Of the government, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Pay attention. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Who saves his people? God. Who manifests his Messiah? God. Who makes sure that every promise he has ever given is complete, is faithful, is accomplished, is a sure thing? God. But we don't learn this if we're not being forced to wait for some things that we want. We don't learn this if God just opens his hand and throws everything at us at once because we just feel like it's ours. There's something in the waiting. There's something in the anticipation. There's something in the learning about the darkness in the middle that helps us see the light when it finally breaks forth. Beloved, whatever you're facing in this moment, I beg you, see it in these eyes. See it in light of the fact that God has ordered this day to produce something powerful in your soul. This misery, this darkness, this hardship, this difficulty, this absence, this void, this hard thing that you're looking at, this illness, this loss, this whatever it is, God has created this thing in this moment for this purpose. 
to manifest Christ in you and to you so that when he reveals the final purpose, you're actually going to go, wow, that's really cool. So often, we, we wonder at things and we see things brought about in such a way that we can't even imagine how somebody accomplished tricks and, and sleight of hand things and all the little funny things. You watch a, a story where they, they bring in all the loose ends, a, a, a murder mystery where somebody grabs the thread from the very beginning that only Sherlock Holmes could ever have seen. And, and when they unpack all that, I for one am always amazed. I'm like, wow, that's cool. I want to go back and read that again so I can find that thread and see it woven throughout. I like that. Beloved, there's something in that that makes the the, the revelation at the end that much better. See, God promised that he would accomplish everything he set out and that he would do it himself. Nothing's going to hinder him and nothing is going to aid him. You recognize that truth? You can't stop God. Most of the time, we're pretty good on that part. But you also can't help Him. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't ask for it. He gives us the opportunities to come alongside and serve Him and to cooperate with Him in the work, not because He needs it, but because we need to do it. Because it's good for us to be engaged in the process. There's nothing more destructive to somebody's soul, body, mind, and spirit than just sitting around and doing nothing. It's it's hard on you. It's hard on your body. It's hard on your mind. It's hard on everything that you are. We're, we're, We're made to be doing things. We're made to be moving. We're made to be operating. And it teaches us that every single word God ever promised will absolutely come to pass when it is supposed to come to pass. There is an appointed time for all of it. Now, just just think this through with me. If there is an appointed time for the fulfillment of a promise, does it stand to reason that that appointed time is part of the promise itself and part of why you're having to wait? Does it not stand to reason that that's the way it is? Look at Ephesians again, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start reading at verse 3. And I I just want to draw your attention to this aspect of it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, 
He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is our guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. And this this passage is so packed with words of waiting, with words of anticipation, with words of purpose about that waiting. But my favorite phrase in this passage is that phrase in the dispensation of the fullness of the times. It's just pregnant with meaning. It's glorious. The dispensation of the fullness of the times. That in the right moment, God is going to pour out the the truth that the times that have been gathering and all those threads that have been woven throughout history have all been placed there for the same purpose. And they've all been placed there for the revelation of everything that God is doing. And he's given us these little hints. He's given us these little insights. He's given us these little indicators throughout all of his giving, so that we who are living in this place right now, in the midst of this present darkness, might hope in him. We might have our eyes lifted up. We might have our hearts filled with joy. We might have his purpose as our meaning. And we might learn to experience hope in the most powerful of ways. He would show his power. He would honor his name. He would crush his enemies. He would deliver his people. And he gives us promise after promise after promise along the way. Every single thing that he ever promised would be fulfilled. Look at Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, starting at verse 8. Speaking about dead idols up to this point, starting at verse 80, says this, Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressor, remember the former things of old. So think back. Understand who I am and what I've done and what I've said to you. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, and I also will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I also will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. Part of this prophecy is about the return of Israel from the Babylonian captivity. And that matters to us in this context because at the time of Isaiah's writing, Israel had not yet been taken captive. 
You see, God is always telling us, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And so you know that there are no accidents, I'm going to tell you what I do before I do it. Who was the one that he was going to bring from a far country to execute his fury? Yeah, he was going to bring the Babylonians. He was going to bring unto his people the punishment that their rebellion had deserved. But he was doing it to build faith in his word. What did the Babylonian exile accomplish in Israel? Well, the return was it, and part of that whole process. But if you look at it, it had the effect of finally purging them of their idolatry for all the false gods of the land. Now, they picked up other idolatries. They began to idolize the law in an unrighteous way. But they were purged, finally, through the Babylonian exile of the Baal worship and the Astaroth poles and the, 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 the high places and all those things that had destroyed them as a people who were supposed to be holy. And God took them to Babylon, and while he was there and during the things that, that he accomplished there, he finally purged them of that because they were held captive in a land that was filled with false gods. And God over and over and over demonstrated who he was and delivered them and preserved them and fulfilled his promises and brought them back to Israel and did all of these things because he wanted to create in them trust for his word. But more than that, he wanted to amplify their longing. Now, this is a key component in actively understanding the purpose of hope in our lives. It's the fact that if you want something, sometimes it's good for you to wait for it. (laughs) It, It's not always the best thing to read the last page of the novel first. (laughs) This has been a debate in my house for as long as I can remember. I have some heathen in my family that read the last page first. Yeah, terrible. There is, there is power in the waiting. And there is purpose in the longing. There is something which is glorious for us to know and something for us to understand. And part of what he's doing in that longing is to make us want him more than we want our sin. Amen. This is really the key to righteousness. The scripture says that to a hungry man, every bitter thing is sweet. But to the satisfied soul, even the honeycomb is bitter. You want to know how to not have sin in your life? Have more desire for God. It's really that simple. When your soul is satisfied in God, you don't want sin any longer. So every place that you consistently fall into sin, it's giving you an indicator that there's some place in your life around that sin that is satisfying itself with something that is not God. The more we long for God, the more we want God, the more we desire His Word and His truth and His power and His glory, the more we're made like Christ. The more His purpose is fulfilled in us, the better it is for us. He is preparing His people for the promise. He's purging their sin. He's making them holy and spotless. He's teaching them to trust. He's teaching them to believe. But he's also, also preparing the promise for them. Because there are things that have to be accomplished before everything can be laid in place. If you want to build a house, you have to do it in the right order. 
If you do things out of order, you make it harder along the way. For instance, if I were to build a house for somebody and I thought to myself, you know, it'd be really handy to have a working toilet while we were working on the house. And so we hooked up all the plumbing and hooked up all the, the toilets and we erected a little tent around it so you'd have some privacy to do your business. Guess what I'm going to have to work around for the rest of the project? And at some point, I promise you, somebody's going to break that toilet. And at some point, I promise you, somebody's going to cut the water lines and cut them off low enough, I'm going to have to dig out concrete. I don't know this by experience, but I am in this manner a prophet. <laughs> I know that these things would come to pass. And partly because we have to learn to wait. We have to learn to do things in the right order. And we have to learn to do things in the way that God has ordained. It's good for us. It's good for our souls. And even though it's hard, but he's also preparing the promise for his people. The needed circumstances have to be fulfilled. All the preparations have to be made. It is not an accident that Christ came to earth during the time of the Roman Empire. The Romans invented crucifixion. Scripture was very clear that Christ would be crucified, hung on a tree. The Romans had exerted a tremendous influence on the world around them. They had exerted a power. And the prophecies that had been given during the time of Daniel about the rise of all the other empires and when Messiah would come, all these things had to happen. Israel was longing for Messiah. They were crying out for him. And in the end, all the time that was needed to fulfill the prophecies would be spent so that when the prophecies were fulfilled, everything came out right. Beloved, it's the same work God's doing in our lives now. He's fulfilling his promises in us. Because promise with God always comes with fulfillment. There's a time of preparation, a time when his promises are being prepared and everything is coming forward, getting ready for the time of its expected arrival. But then there is also always a time of promise and fulfillment. And I would, I would lay before you the premise that fulfillment in the absence of promise is lacking something. That, that it's just possession at that point. It's just having it. But you don't see the wonder of it. You don't delight in the fullness of everything that God has been doing to prepare this for you. There, there is something powerful in this idea of fulfillment and promise. And God has absolutely made good on all of his past promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen to the glory of the Father in Him. Every single promise that God has ever made is answered yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Period. He has fulfilled all of His promises. But the revelation of how that is fulfilled is not always plain to us. And sometimes there are still components of His fulfilled promises that are waiting. For instance, we all know that one day we will be taken to be with Him forever. We are promised this. 
So what is it that God has given us by way of guarantee to make sure that we cling to this promise? Perseverance. Perseverance, amen. His Spirit dwelling in us. He has given us His Spirit by way of guarantee. He's given us His Spirit as something to help us cling to Him. He has given us also the gift of participation in the ordinances of the church that remind us as we labor and long for His coming that He has not just abandoned us out here. He's given us His Word, which tells us all of this, that that if we will spend our time studying His Word and spend our time dwelling in it and spend our time thinking about it, that He will give us light, the illumination of His Word by the Spirit that's dwelling in us, to help us see things aright. But He has given us the church and all of the things that the church represents as a, as a touchstone, a collective community that encourages and lifts one another up towards the things of God. It's why it's so important that the church be a place where God is discussed. Where the central topic of all that we do focuses on the spiritual focuses on what it is that God is doing. And that doesn't mean that that's the only thing you're ever allowed to talk about when you're around Christians. But it means that it should be always the resounding theme that we always come back to the glory of God and the power of His promises and the hope that's been delivered to us. This is something that has to be rehearsed. It has to be reminded often because the world crushes in and leeches these things out. You're you're a spiritual colander filled with something. And something is always leaking out. And so you need people in your life that are always going to be pouring Christ back in, that are always going to be pouring truth back in, that are always going to be reminding you of what's real and what isn't. You see, God has given us the gift of participation in the ordinances. He has given us to remind us of His faithfulness. To show us that he has indeed accepted Christ's death on our behalf. When we partake of the Lord's Supper in just a little bit, we're going to be making a confession that we believe that Christ died for us. And that according to Paul in in Romans chapter 6, that we are partaking of his death. And that if we partake of his death, we're also going to partake of his resurrection. That's why we practice water baptism. The immersion of somebody who has confessed Christ under the water demonstrates their being laid to rest. Demonstrates the old man dying. When they rise up, it demonstrates them being raised a new being. The water represents the washing of the blood of Christ. There's so much powerful imagery in all of these things. But this morning we're going to have a Lord's Supper and not a baptism. So, I'll stay focused on that. To allow us to partake of the physical elements of the table, both to bind and nourish our souls to himself and our bodies to one another, as we share in the table of the Lord with others who are themselves fulfilled, is a powerful sustainer of the promise. Sharing food together in any context binds people together. In Eastern cultures, there is a practice that if somebody has shared food with you, if somebody has broken bread in your home, you are not allowed to ever harm them. There is a, there is a, um, a covenant that has, that has been developed and accepted in Eastern cultures, which is why if somebody is like determined to hurt you and invite you over, don't, don't, uh, 
Don't bind yourself. If you're, if you're going to hurt them, that's what I was trying to say. And they invite you over. Don't, don't partake of the food. <laughs> because it makes a covenant. It makes a promise. I've shared this meal with you. I've shared this food with you. I, I'm, I'm bound together with you. Beloved, understand this. When, when we do this together, it binds us to Christ. But it also knits us to one another. It makes us more of, of the possession of the body. It makes us a part of what God has called us to be as the body. The fulfillment is the best and most honest when we actually pause to participate in the death and life of Christ. We take his death as nourishment, strengthening power for our hope. I, I cannot imagine the darkness that, that overcame the disciples as they watched Christ being led up to be crucified. I can't imagine the hopelessness that poured over them. But do you recognize the truth that all of that hopelessness and darkness didn't need to be there? Jesus himself had told them at least three times, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered up, they're going to kill me, in three days, I'll rise again. As plainly as that, he had said those words to them on at least three occasions in the last couple of months. And yet, when it happened, they were crushed, dismayed, undone, overborne, scattered to the ends of the earth. They, they, they were broken by it. Why? Why? Because they didn't trust what he said. They hadn't learned yet to hope in him. Beloved, whatever it is that you're facing in this day, I would encourage you to apply a healthy dose of hope. Of trusting in God and believing that his promises have all been satisfied in Christ. We take on his blood as nourishment for our soul, feeding our hope with the assurance of payment made on our behalf. And we take the truth of his resurrection as a guarantee that God has indeed accepted his payment on our behalf. We celebrate all of these things in the context of our lives, but we celebrate all of these things in the context of his coming so that we might remember that his coming, apart from these things, is meaningless. If, if Christ is not slain for sin, then the birth of this baby has no meaning and no purpose whatsoever. In just a few moments, we're going to approach the table. And I want to encourage you to take a few moments and to pray. To seek the face of God. To ask Him to give you clarity. To ask Him to give you understanding. To ask Him to help you see just how powerful this thing called hope is. As we confess our hope in the risen Christ through the taking of the Lord's Supper. I'll pray with you and then I'll give you some time to pray quietly. Father, I ask that you give us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us your purpose in all that you do. God, help us trust. Help us believe. Help us obey. 
Help us know that over everything, your promises stand triumphant. God, give us grace in this hour to believe you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that he is, for the fact that all of your promises are yes and amen in him. We thank you for his coming. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for his ascension. And we thank you for the certain promise that he's coming back for us. God, let us live the days that are given with purpose, with hope, with power, and with clarity. We ask it in Jesus' name.